Evolve is turning five. Happy birthday, Yom Huladet Sameach. To celebrate our birthday, our anniversary, we've been publishing weekly essays related to the upcoming holiday of Purim and the theme of uncovering the light, which is which is spelled out in the in Megillat Esther, the story of Purim. If you're familiar with Evolve, and since you're listening to this podcast, I think you are, then you know that we have shed light on a host of difficult issues and challenges faced by the Jewish world today. You can read these exclusive Purim essays, and, and there are some video teachings also, and stay up to date with everything Evolve is doing by signing up for our mailing list. Tap on the sign-up link in our show notes to subscribe. Okay, on to the show. From my Reconstructing Judaism office, welcome to Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. You need to have two truths, one in each pocket. Progress is not inevitable in one pocket, and in the other pocket, progress is possible. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. And by the way, just redecorated the office a bit for the first time since 2019, put up some new photos of my kids and artwork. It, it really looked um, frozen in time with pictures from, from preschool in there. My, my, my kids are, are, are nine and 12. So it was, it was, it was a little eerie going in there, but now I feel um, it feels, it feels more up to date. Well, now that you know my whole life story today, I'll be speaking with Rabbi Daniel Schwartz and we'll be discussing his two Evolve essays, the first evolving views on evolution and the second does faith have a prayer, finding hope as we confront the climate crisis? But first, I'm privileged today to be joined in this interview by my friend and executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub. Rabbi Jacob, great great to have you in the virtual booth with me today. Thank you, Brian. Okay. So today we're going to be delving into a philosophical essay on the one hand and a, and a so to speak, practical one on the other. Evolving Views on Evolution, which was apparently dreamed up uh, by the rabbi while rafting on the Colorado River. It's, it's a meditation on how humans perceive reality, whether or not things are getting better, and what we do and how we respond if they're not. And you know, also asking, do people have agency in, in the really big stuff, climate change, biodiversity, human civilization, and, and how all that turns out? And, and is the concept of evolution as we know it helpful in, in thinking about these things? The second is about Rabbi Schwarz's participation in a 2021 gathering of religious leaders at the Vatican. It was um, held in advance of the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow. And in a sense, um, these essays are mirror images of one another. Um, and one is really about theology and philosophy, and one is about activism and how you how you try to enact to save the planet and, and, and better the human species and, and, and how you do that as a religious actor. And by the way, as part of this work, uh, Rabbi Schwarz met Pope Francis and, and we'll, 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 we'll talk about the Pope the, that might be a first on the show and, uh, and, and, and Pope Francis's impact on environmentalism and the image of faith leaders as social justice activists. 
Now, before we get to the interview, a reminder, all of the essays discussed on the show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for the show, but we, we recommend checking them out uh, before, after, preferably not during, um, but go ahead, it's free, dive in, lots to read and digest. Now it is time for our guest. Rabbi Daniel Schwarz is the executive director of the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life, known as COJOL for short. He has also held leadership positions with the Greater Washington Interfaith Power and Light, the National Religious Partnership for the Environment, the Children's Environmental Health Network, and the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. He's the author of To Till and To Tend, A Guide for Jewish Environmental Study and Action, and he's written a children's book called Bim and Bomb, A Shabbat Tale. He serves as rabbi of Temple Chesed in Scranton, and, and surely this is the most significant fact about him. He walked uh, both of my nephews through their entire B'nai Mitzvot journeys. Good day, Rabbi Daniel Swartz. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to, great to have you here. Yes, welcome. Great to be here and uh, excited about the conversation. Rabbi, you're a very you're a very busy person. You 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 have a you you run an organization devoted to Judaism and the environment. You you're a, you're a pulpit rabbi at a congregation in in Scranton, which I've which I've been to multiple multiple times. Um, you took a break to raft on on the Colorado and explore the Grand Canyon, and that got you thinking about big questions about evolution and and how we perceive events and reality in the world today. So can you tell us a little bit about that that trip and how it got you thinking about these big questions and and made you feel compelled to write them write them down with with a lot else on your plate? Uh sure. Um so uh it was my second time rafting down the Grand Canyon. Um I had done it uh, almost exactly 50 years before um, that time with my wow. uh, dad and mom and and sister. Um, and this time it was a family reunion. It was uh, my dad and stepmom and and my my step siblings and their families and my sister and her family um, and 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 Rabbi Marjorie Berman, um, my my wife who's a, a reconstructionist rabbi. And um, the first time uh, when I was a kid uh, really ignited uh, for me a passion in, in Judaism and geology, um, exploring the natural world, but also thinking about it in terms of, of my, my faith. And uh, so revisiting it 50 years later um, was a, a chance to revisit my past, even as I was revisiting the the Earth's past, and and it just made me think, you know, given what I've learned in the interim and and different conversations I've had through the years about people, about science and faith and 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 evolution in particular, um, about how we're afraid of some of the facts uh, of the natural world, which is not a good thing to do given that they're real, A, but also B, that there's no need to, um, that if you understand it with the right perspective, that they're beautiful and not scary. 
Um, and particularly this idea that uh, that we hear in different places, but especially from folks in the faith world that, you know, evolution must have some purpose, that we're evolving towards something. Um, and, uh, and that, that, that if, if there isn't this goal, then there's not meaning in life. And, and for me, the unfolding of history with all of its, whether we're talking about the earth's history or human history, with all of its uncertainties and all of its possible pathways is just deeply exciting. And it also gives me much more of a sense of agency in the world, um, believing and understanding that things could have been different, that, that there's not this inevitable plan uh, that we're uh, cycling our way towards, but that that we could make not just mistakes, but also good choices, and that that those choices make a difference in the future. You know, so seeing how life unfolded and the the different pathways that it took and didn't take, and and dead ends uh, in evolutionary term, um, just made me think a, a lot about how I would take that in personally. About um, you know, th- there's not a future. Um, that I've, I'm destined to try to fulfill. And if I don't fulfill it, I've failed. Um, but there's these possibilities of, of, uh, of life in front of me. And if I really understand that, first of all, I can make uh, better choices. Um, but also, uh, I recognize the possibility of choice itself. So um, this is very exciting to me as as I shared with you last year, I wrote a piece on the evolving definition of evolution 25 years ago. I'm very excited about this piece because you actually take me by the hand and tell me what to do about the non-progressive nature of evolution. But I want to slow down a little and make sure it's clear. When particularly Reconstructionists say Judaism is an evolving religious civilization, we mostly all think that that means that our Judaism is superior, more evolved than medieval or rabbinic or biblical um, Judaism. And I think I personally have less trouble thinking about the fact that the human species might never have evolved if some asteroid had wiped us out at a given time, then less trouble with that than with the idea that um, gender equality is superior to non-gender equality or, you know, what we could, any one of our deeply held values. It's just a contextual, to use your term, contextual um, evolution, because given the Industrial Revolution, it works that way. But back in another time, another place, you know, I could give lots of examples. Um, it it was perfectly fine to do things in ways that seem abhorrent to us now. So, I'd love for you to comment. Yeah, um, you raise a, a a really important point, Jacob, and that is that there are both deep similarities, but also some differences when we're talking about uh, the way that evolution proceeds in the natural world and particularly cultural evolution. You know, I think humans 
maybe messing with our own physical evolution in ways we don't quite understand, but but the same basic laws apply whether we're we're trying to uh, create certain physical characteristics or not. But um, you know, one of the things that can be very dangerous is to um, map blindly from one into the other. Uh, that is part of what led to some of the horrors of of, of social Darwinism. You know, when we talk about cultural evolution, we're we're looking at <clears throat> not the you know the way that that physical evolution is graded, so to speak, is survival. And survival is always contextual. Um, uh, you know, what enables me to survive in one place in one time is very different from what enables me to survive in an, in another time. And and so there's not an absolute form of survival. Um, and in fact, you know, that's that's a huge problem with history is that we get we get stuck on the idea that. Um, because we needed to fight in this kind of method in the past, it means that fighting is the best way to survive in the in the present, which is often wrong. Um, uh, cultural evolution um, r- really can have a goal of of not survival, but of um, I guess in Jewish terms, uh, redemption, um, taking a world that, is imperfect and broken, and and trying to to heal it, um, but it it does help a little with humility, if we if we understand that just as we can look in the past and see some really things that just look to us like blatant obvious errors, um, that we're so gr- glad that we have evolved past and have corrected. Um, that that perhaps the the brilliant solutions that we have come up with today that some future time is going to look at and say, boy, they were foolish, um, and and recognizing that I think is a pretty helpful uh, dose of of humility. Um, it's very easy looking at the past and seeing some of those mistakes to feel superior, and. I think we've gotten some things right that they got wrong. I think they've they they conversely there are at least some places where we have have lost important wisdom, but but probably most importantly of all, we haven't reached redemption yet. We're we're not we're not uh, at a place where we should be satisfied with where we are and think that we've got it all right. Um, uh, so, so there there can be progress, I think, in in cultural evolution and in, in the evolution of civilizations, um, but we we shouldn't be too self satisfied with it. That's helpful. I think it was Sir Paul McCartney who sang the the Sergeant Pepper lyric. I got to believe it's getting better. It's getting better all the time. I think I just I just um, yeah. yeah I came close to there. Um, so, I mean, we know late 19th, early 20th century, a good bit of the industrialized world, there was there was a real strong sense and faith in in progress and scientific progress and in 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 human progress and in lots of ways, um, measurable ways, y- human life was getting better for a certain number of people in a certain number of places. Then we have the Great War that sort of blows blows up that 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 sense. And we have this lost generation that that lived with 
you know, that balloon getting burst. And, and of course, you know, the Second World War, the, the Holocaust, the birth of the nuclear age. But I mean, my, my sense is, is, is certainly pretty recently there, there was a, a sense, um, certainly among a lot of pro- progressives I know that, that, you know, by and large, if you blocked out and didn't look at certain things, you know, climate change or race relations that, you know, rights were expanding, things were getting better. It was sort of this slow progress to more and more rights. And then, you know, then we've had like 2016 and suddenly, I don't know, everything, you know, we're asking ourselves is, is our democracy going to hold and, and, you know, more, <laughs> will our planet hold? It just, it just seems like there's, there's so much of it. So I, I guess, um, this is a long winded way of, um, of um, asking, like, if you don't believe that that things are getting better, how do you how do you live? How do you get up in the morning? How do you use philosophy, the kind of philosophy and and theology you're talking about, to act with some purpose? Uh, excellent. You know, I I don't. I wish I believed, but I don't believe. I, as Martin Luther King said, that the arc of the universe is long, but it is bending towards justice. I that would be great. Um, I, I think the arc of the universe bends this way and then bends that way. Um, and, uh, so I guess my advice is, is a little bit like Rabbi Boonham that you need to have, uh, two truths, one in each pocket. And he talked about the idea of in one pocket, dust and ashes, I'm dust and ashes in the other pocket, you know, the world was created for my sake. Um, and, and as, as a similar thing is progress is not inevitable in one pocket, and in the other pocket, progress is possible. That if I stand on the sidelines, I I can't expect the world to bend towards justice. Um, But I know that it has sometimes. And and so that's my calling then um, as a human being uh, is, is to figure out what I can do to be part of a better story unfolding. That might not happen if I don't do it. You know, one of the interesting things from looking at at the grand history of the planet is, you know, Jacob mentioned one of the big unexpected things, you know, asteroids hitting hitting the planet and how they can make a big shift. But but there are all sorts of stories of what has happened in the history of the world uh, in terms of evolution and in terms of human history where seemingly minor, insignificant things ended up having huge impacts. Um, so, so even if it seems like the whole world is trending towards authoritarianism, we really don't know what next act might shift that. Um, uh, whether that's, you know, just being kind to somebody who turns out to, uh, help shift the world because you were kind to them. Um, or or something more dramatic. So yeah, it's not inevitable. Um, we have probably more ways to screw up life today than we have had at any point in in human history. And yet we also have amazing tools for making life better. And we have multiple paths in front of us. So it's all about what we're going to choose. I want to... Uh take advantage of your rabbinic pastoral <laughs> expertise to help me and I think a lot of 
other people. So it's possible that we've reached the two degrees or will any day and that it's over, that um, my grandchildren might live because they're going to be privileged, but, but really um, human history, it's a possibility that it's not inevitable that we will continue. And all right, so I hear you saying, okay, but the only response is let's do the best we can to, um, to turn that around. But there's something existentially, emotionally disastrous, just really leveling about that possibility. How, how do you deal with that? So I remember vividly when I was in college and was friends with somebody who was uh, an RA, a residential advisor, and one of her advisees was feeling suicidal. Um, and it was a, a young woman who I had had some connection with. And so I took a walk with her and we talked about uh, what was going on for her. And I gave her my version of a pep talk, which is fairly depressing, um, which said, you know, there's there's no guarantee that anything is going to get better. Um, you're feeling alone. You might feel alone for a long time, but there's a possibility. And, you know, and, and you and I have connected and uh, that speaks for the fact that you're a really interesting person and you've got something worthwhile and hopefully you'll find some people who, who share that, even though a lot of people won't. And for her, that was exactly what she needed to hear because everybody had told her everything was going to be okay. And she knew uh, experientially that not everything was going to be okay because for her at that moment, everything was really not okay. Um, so to say it's going to all be okay was just not helpful. Um, I don't know that, that, that my prescription is universally helpful. It, I'm sure it is not, in fact. Um, but I don't know a single person who has managed to get you know, past 20 who has not experienced deep tragedy. There's no way to live life without having our heart uh, broken uh, again and again. Um, but at the same time, I think our lives all demonstrate that that, that tragedy is not all that there is. Um, and that even in the midst of those tragedies, there's, uh, if we give them the space uh, to be felt and to really experience mourning and to not say everything's okay, there's the love that remains. And so I would just kind of scale that up uh, when we think about society. There's going to be huge losses. They're going to be heartbreaking. We're going to lose wonderful, beautiful species and, and, and beautiful places. There's going to be aspects of civilization that uh, are going to be strained at best and, and wiped out at worst. Um, but there will be much that remains and that will be astoundingly beautiful and wonderful. Um, and uh, I, I, I want to make a choice to, to not just be in the state of grief. I, I need to feel grief um, because it's real. And if I try to 
tamp it down. It's going to come out in all sorts of unhealthy ways. But I can also see the love that remains um, in not just in a personal way, but in the in the wonders of the world around us. We know from the history of the planet that there have been these huge major extinction events that have radically shifted what life is like, but life has continued. It is, I think, the likelihood that human civilization is going to look like it does today in 100 years is actually pretty small. Um, But the ways that it's going to look different are not yet decided. It could look different in that uh, all order has broken down and uh, and and we've we've got a completely anarchic uh, dystopian world, or it could be that we actually figure a few things out, um, and some of the really dysfunctional parts of today, uh, we we've we're doing better at, at at the same time that that there's been that there's been loss. So, I guess a feel the grief. It's going to be there's going to be rough and terrible things, and b know that humans have been built to survive grief um, when they when they are in touch with it and that there's more to life than that uh, that that there's there's uh, profound uh, beauty and love even as there's profound uh, loss and and destruction thank you okay. Bear with me. I see a path to a to a question, but it might it might be a it might be a winding one. I mean, um, hey, we're we're on Paul McCartney, so there could has yeah. to be a long and winding <laughs> long road. and winding road, right? right. And, and, yeah. and, and 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 I'm sure Imagine could if we go to Lenin could come up. Um, we're imagining a lot. Um, I mean, humans really think in stories. Um, I don't know if there's ever been our popular culture has ever been as rife with, with apocalyptic dystopian stories as we are now. I've, there's so many examples I just read and then watched the, um, the show station station 11 about, about a pandemic that wipes out uh, a chunk of humanity. Um, There's, there's also this tremendous human need to know the end of the story, which I think maybe is one reason we have these apocalyptic scenarios in different religions and and maybe this like pessimism now that that um, oh the environment is doomed we're we're all doomed we we can't do anything about it I mean I think your opening message here today was we have agency but but like we might we might not have agency to save every species you talked about so I guess what's you know I guess it's a, it's a repeat of like how do you scale up that message what 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 is you know what is the story that that we could be telling ourselves that would be helpful and and useful and not fantasy i guess mhm i i um i'm working on and and that probably could be put in quotes um uh, a, a a sci-fi novel that that had set aside for a number of years and i'm now dabbling in it again um where there no no humans appear in it. Um, uh, part of it was just I was once at a gathering. This is the way my mind works, and this is uh, perhaps illustrative of why I managed to be uh, optimistic at the same time that I'm, that I'm a Cubs fan. 
Um, uh, the didn't they uh, win eventually? They won the they world. Did, eventually, one hundred six years. They won, <laughs> right? You know that's part of the story, right? Um, is uh, and it may be another hundred years before they win again, but you know they will. They will. Um, the the uh, but this particular species, their holy book. Um, has has just a, a a front cover. It doesn't have a back cover because what's central to their story is that the story's not done, um, and and that that the ending hasn't been written. And you know the the great thing about the the Torah cycle in Judaism is that even though it's you know a set five books, we we read it as if it's doesn't have an ending, uh, as if each time we look at it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's different and we learn something new and we can tell new stories, even though they're linked to uh, this particular foundation of, of, of stories. The evolutionary thinkers, not Darwin, because he saw much more clearly, but the folks who followed in his footprints, who became much more orthodox Darwinians than Darwin was, really did think that there was progress unfolding. And we have social thinkers, you know, particularly again, as you said, Brian, at the at the end of the uh, 1800s and beginning of the 1900s, who see, you know, progress is inevitable, and they have a they they know they see the stories ending, and the people who you know think that humanity either has no chance or shouldn't have a chance, um, that, uh, or or that 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 dystopia is is inevitable also think they know the end of the story and and i think they're both wrong <laughs> um, i i don't think we know the end of the story i think i think it's going to be a story with a lot of tragedy i i do believe that but how much tragedy and 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 the mixture of tragedy and triumph is not written in in stone or in the cosmos um and um, and it will make a difference. Uh, you know, it's a trite, it's a trite parable, but but there is truth to it. Of you know, this this guy walking down the beach, and uh, where a bunch of uh, sea stars have been washed up, and and he's he's throwing them in into the water, and somebody comes up to him and says, "There's no way that you can." You can save all these. They're, they're, you know, it's just part of life. They die, and he says, "Well, it made a difference to that sea star, and it made a difference to that sea star as he as he throws them back." Um, what we do will make a difference to each other, um, and and that's that's both a short term thing and a huge cosmological thing. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's not going to be all happiness, but um, I think. Part of the reason that we tell dystopian stories, I believe, is is that we that the authors want there to be a different ending than the one that they've written, and maybe if they depict that society and we rebel against it, that we'll do something better. Um, I, I think that's the same impulse that that you get for utopian stories of wanting to envision a better world. And, and we learn both ways. You know, some of the most valuable things I've learned about having a good relationship is from people who had terrible relationships and learning. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, as well as learning from people who have great relationships. 
Um, and I think we can apply that to the world as well. We, our imagination allows us to see some terrible futures and some wonderful futures, and we, we should learn from, from both of those. So I just want to uh, observe that what I'm, I'm, I'm just loving listening to what you're saying. What, what I'm hearing is uh, this is a theological path for anyone who doesn't believe in supernatural purpose and divine direction and who, uh, for someone who doesn't want to buy into um, the notion that things have inherent purpose, right? That um, even though they don't, it's okay. We can still have a, a loving um, world, world worth saving. Yes, um, I, I, I deeply believe that. Um, um, and I'm, I personally am glad that it's that way, um, uh, both because of the agency it gives me, but also because, frankly, if there was a right path odds are that I wouldn't find it. Um, and then I would just feel terrible about, oh man, I, I just screwed up because here's this, uh, you know, I, I got 73% on this, on this exam of life. And, 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 and I would, you know, if I got, you know, just knowing from my days as a student, if I, if I got a 95, I'd be just upset about the five percent that I got wrong. How could I have done that? But, but, but the test of life, I, you know, I would barely pass, and I'd just be so upset about all those things that I did wrong. Um, and what I try to take out of this, and and what I what I see in the world of evolution and the world of 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 humanity, is that that there's rarely a single answer. There's some things that are genuinely wrong, uh, but. But there's many ways of being right, and there's many things that are an, an interesting and complex mixture, and uh, so so it, it's not just that I either pass or fail. It's that I try to find a path that that creates meaning for me and that's that's that honors people in life around me. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And you know, my hope of 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 you know, folks for whom Judaism is an important part of their lives is that that they recognize that historically there have been many Judaisms, and that odds are that that there's not going to be a single Judaism that answers all the questions of all Jews in the future, um, and that that's a good thing. That that there would be some diversity in the in the ecosphere of Judaism. So not only does this promote humility, but I think it's a, a, a firm foundation for compassion and self-compassion, right? yeah. forgiveness of self and others. Right. Uh, there, there's, you know, there's both, it's both responsibility and compassion kind of mixed together. On the one hand, I do have to look, to try to figure out how the choices I'm making affect the people around me and myself. And on the other hand, understanding that there's absolutely no way I can see all the consequences of everything I'm going to do, um, that there's so many unexpected, unintended consequences that that even when I try my best and do what I think is exactly the right thing, it's going to have some 
disastrous elements. Um, and, and sometimes I'm going to fail to live up to my own vision. And that's because I'm imperfect and can't expect perfection. Um, so it's that mixture. It's not saying, well, because I can't figure out everything that's going to happen, it just doesn't matter. I'm just going to take care of myself and screw the rest of the world. Um, no, we, we are so interrelated that, that I, I can't ignore what I do to others because that's, that's just part of, of reality and part of my life and certainly should be part of my thinking as an ethical being. But just understanding that, that there's not a right answer that we, that we don't have the perfect knowledge as we make choices. And, and so, so we strive, but we are compassionate and, and finding that balance, um, of, of, as you said, humility and compassion, I think is really, is really key to being able to keep going in the world. If you're enjoying this episode, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. These really help other people find the show and, and get tuned into it. We'd like to get to a hundred five-star ratings and we're nearly halfway there. Please help us out if you have a moment. We, we really appreciate it. Okay, now back to our conversation with Rabbi Daniel Schwartz. So you also, I mean, you also very much have an activist side. You've been an activist for decades, trying to, trying to show agency in the human story, in the in the ecological story. And not that long ago, you had a chance on on, on a big stage to try to, to to play a part in shaping that story, gathering with religious leaders from across the world at the Vatican to to influence the um, the UN climate um, climate summit at the time I think it was in in, in Scotland that year um, I mean can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what you what you took from it sure um, so I I got this invitation which I didn't quite believe at first and and I still am profoundly puzzled as to exactly how the Vatican knew of my existence, let alone wanted me to be part of this select group of 40 leaders from around the world. Um, but I approached the Bishop of the Diocese of Scranton, um, you know, not having any sense of sort of how the Vatican works for his input. And he's a, uh, Bishop Bambera is a profoundly compassionate, um, lovely person who grew up in the Jewish neighborhood of Scranton and whose mom, uh, you know, cooked rogelach and, and, and learned how to make chicken soup and, and all sorts of things. Uh, and he said, you know, Daniel, if, if they invited you, this Pope, uh, when he invites people, wants to actually hear from them. And if he hadn't said that, I think I would have at least for a period of time have felt just intimidated to have spoken up and tried to impact the way that this meeting went on. But but I really took his words to heart and uh, as a lesson for me in this moment and as a bigger lesson. And so, so yeah, I it turned out that there were all these folks who were in charge of, of much, much larger 
uh, religious organizations, you know, the Pope, for example, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the General Secretary of the Muslim World League. But I knew as much about the subject that we were talking about as any of them, and in many cases more, because this was one of the little corners of the world that I specialized in. Um, and so to really see that I had something to contribute to this discussion was was uh, was a real important uh, part of what unfolded. And I really felt that part of what I could do is push them farther to be more prophetic, uh, to be more courageous, um, and also to to speak specifically about ways that the world operates with criteria other than justice, and that we needed to lift up justice, and that that justice here was both results oriented, but also process oriented. How do we? Um, you know, there's this tendency even among religious leaders who have who believe that they're called to be prophetic to speak for others on behalf of others as opposed to speaking up so that other voices can speak up for themselves um you know part of the problem with having a bunch of uh white men having discussions and part of what was trying to be changed in this meeting in terms of diversity to recognize what voices weren't there and so we, uh, I, I, I pushed, and it made a difference. Um, folks were willing to go at least a little further because of of some of the pushing that I did, and and that some of the other more activist, uh, not not quite so senior leaders uh, at this meeting uh, said. And we wrote, a, I, I think, a, a both a, a a statement with some vision and some some demands and some some beauty behind it uh, about um the possibility of what a faith vision of of from all these different faith traditions could could offer the world as it was considering what to do about climate um which included hope um included this message of not blocking out the terrible things that are going to happen not denying them but nonetheless ha- having having a sense of of hope and, and possibility, uh, but but working out of love, uh, love for other human beings, love for all of life on the planet, working out of uh, a sense of the innate value. Uh, they are not a economic utilitarian value, but uh, but an, an inherent value, um, and and how. In just the way that the world has unfolded since human history began, that uh, so often the powerful uh, benefit from certain situations and other people who are less powerful pay the cost and how those dynamics are writ large in, in climate change. So together we we came up with this document that, that I helped shape uh, uh, many parts of that we uh, sent to the to what's called COP26, Conference of Parties 26, which was that particular climate conference uh, in, uh, in Glasgow in, in October 2021. And it served as kind of the mezuzah to the meeting uh, in both a, a physical and uh, I hope a symbolic 
uh, spiritual way in that the meeting took place in two major rooms and our document was on the wall in between one room and the other. And it was read to people, and uh, and 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 I think they heard some of its calls, um, uh, particularly as and and again, this has always been an important lesson for me as an activist. That sometimes the immediate impact of what you do seems to be zero, um, but that you've planted some seeds that that actually bear fruit. Um, that. Last year's discussion, which took place in Egypt, um, really focused on on some of the key points that we talked about, which is that in addition to solving this problem, as we as we start to address the things that we haven't solved of climate change, which are going to be enormous, nations with more resources need to be helping out nations with fewer resources. Uh, both as they shift their economies, but also to deal with the disasters that, frankly, are can be laid at our doorstep because of the 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 our own use of of fossil fuels, um, and and the language of justice and the language of inclusion that we called for really started to be there in a more noticeable way in the discussions this this past October and November and. In, in Egypt. Uh, again, we're, it's far from a, a foregone conclusion that they're actually going to follow through on the promises that they made. But, but I feel like we may have been one of the things uh, shifting direction of understanding this, not just as a global problem to be solved, but as something that is affecting different people radically differently. In, in, including radical injustices about who's caused the problem and who's suffering, and that that we can't try to globally solve the problem without dealing with some of those uh, in, injustices. And you know, referring back to our idea of uh, multiple answers, you know, one of the things that used to obsess me as a younger activist was my most effectively using my activist energy. And eventually I realized I have no idea. Um, and, and I'm going to be wrong at least as often as I'm right. But, but if I'm, if I'm doing something I believe in, in a, in a method that I believe in, that that's probably as good as I can do and, and that it will make some difference. I should always try to learn what's more effective and what's less effective, but, but in the end, I'm going to be choosing to interact with the world in ways that that I can do, which may not be the thing the world most needs, but it's what I can do. And hopefully there's somebody else who's doing it, too. And maybe I can help inspire them and they can do it their way, just like I do it my way. Um, but it really did uh, in the bishop's message that that I should trust that I have something important to say was the precursor to all of it. If I hadn't believed that, I wouldn't have made a difference there. And I think the document wouldn't have been as good and it would have had less chance of making a difference in the discussion. And, and I hope you know, folks listening to this um, see that not as Pollyanna-ish, but, 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 but very real, that, that there is something that they know because of their lived experience that other people don't know. 
um, and they have something to offer if they get involved. So you were you were in the room with with Pope Francis, who for a decade now has been the most recognized religious leader on the planet. I think we can say has made presumably what's it has has made an effort to make the case for the relevancy of religion in confronting some of the world's problems. And and he's spoken and, and gotten a lot of coverage for issues that you you care about. You know, A, the 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 environment and, and climate change, and B sort of the linkage of that with human well-being, with poverty, and and, and talking about these as 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 different sides of the same coin. And I guess I'm just Wondering, this is you know, have you seen this making making a difference uh, either in just how governments approach these problems or how other religious leaders talk about these problems? So, I guess that was that that was that was a trying to be a better way of saying you met you met Pope Francis. What was he like? But but I, I think there was a serious question behind that. Oh yeah, um, so. So I think Pope Francis has made a difference in a in a in a bunch of different ways, but but one of them, you know, sort of linking to our main theme is that 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 he has really told the story in a way that people have heard it differently, um, and and it is a way that people of faith um, are used to operating that scientists and policymakers often aren't, which is. That the same time that holding at the same time the, the the big picture, the overall overarching questions of of injustice and and planetary climate and the individual human being or animal and and what its life is like. You know, Francis has demonstrated love for individual human beings. Um, who are devalued by systems uh, in a way that makes much more real his overarching uh, uh, picture. Um, you know, when he washes the, f- the feet of somebody or hugs somebody, um, it, it shows where he's coming from in this bigger picture, that he is not just thinking of statistics or abstractions, but of the real human uh, and planetary life dimensions of of these of these questions. I do think it is much easier to talk about the link between faith and climate, and the link between climate and justice now than it was uh, ten years ago. Um, and to not get just puzzled expressions. Um, and Francis is a huge part of that. Um, when I first started working on faith in the environment issues um, many years ago now, uh, my mom, uh, of blessed memory, would tell her colleagues what I was doing. And she said, oh, my, my son works on Judaism and the environment. And they would all go, what? Huh? What's that? I don't understand. What's the connection? And there's, there's much less of that now. Um, and I, and I do think that that Francis's work is 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 part of that, and and because of that, then we have this way, uh, this this added voice that does I think really add something to the equation, and here's where he succeeded less but somewhat. New populations of people getting involved, 
I do think that there are many more people addressing environmental justice and climate conditions out of their faith than there were before Francis's work on this. Um, but I, I think there's still a lot of resistance and a lot of folks who uh, who somehow have this idea that religion is about what happens in your house of worship uh, in a particular ritual way um, and anything else is not really the core of, of religion. Um, where, um, you know, both Pope Francis and I would feel very differently about, about that. But he, he really, you know, it's a limited experience, but in my limited experience with him, I, I really got the sense of that integration of, um, how he actually dealt with individual human beings and his grand ethos. Um, I've, I've met people with uh, uh, beautiful grand uh, uh, philosophies who are just mean to the people around them. And I've met people who are really loving, but don't see the big picture and don't understand that there's got to be more than uh, you know, a soup kitchen, but there's got to be uh, societal transformation. And, and Francis was one of those rare individuals who just seem to exemplify um, uh, direct love and a grand grand vision uh, really really pulled together and I he's not a perfect person and he's also dealing with an imperfect institution that he's trying to shift after you know thousands of years and 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 millions upon millions of people but it's really the example of his life um, is 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 profoundly inspiring. Is there a way you would like folks to either think about evolution differently or, or the relationship between science and, and, and religion differently? Like what, I guess, come, come back to that. Um, how, how do we, how do we tie these, these, these strands together? Well, it, given our, our diving into song lyrics, um, to, Great. to, to, uh, uh, to misquote in this in this case, a blue oyster cult. You know, uh, I think religious people should don't fear the scientist, and and science people don't fear the faith person. Um, hmm. There's 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 a lot nice. of uh, uh, a lot of bad stereotypes and a lot of shallow understanding there. Um, I think if you've got a religion that's that actually actively contradicts the 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 facts and the process of the world it, it it's not a good thing it, it it really is not sustainable um and if you if you try to analyze uh the problems of the world from just the viewpoint of science and you don't bring in um the wisdom and tradition and ethics of of faith you're you're you've you've missed a huge dimension of of the way that we actually live our our lives um, and these things don't have to be in conflict. Um, and when science challenges us past easy answers about, oh, it's all going to be okay. Um, I think that's great. It makes us, uh, dive deeper and, and seek harder and, um, and grow more. And when, when faith says to us, uh, you know, uh, 
it, it may not be logical to have hope right now, but it's essential. Um, I think that's that's also really important, and and it's going to become more important as we, you know, things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, and so having some touchstone that enables you to bring hope and commitment and belief and possibilities to the work is 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 essential. Um, you know, uh, hopelessness justifies itself. Um, because once you feel things are hopeless, then you sit on the side and then they really are. And uh, that happens in so many different ways. Um, uh, if we believe in ourselves and we believe in our agency, sometimes we're going to be wrong, but we're not going to always be wrong. And, uh, and, and that's the reason to keep going. Thanks so much, uh, Daniel. It's, this has been really wonderful. I really enjoyed uh, it. I, I really appreciated it. And, you know, Brian, I, I appreciated our pre-conversation and and just the the thing that I that you and I both agreed on that that this discussion could be very much residing in the head, and we 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 needed to try to um, uh, uncover the ways that it resides in the heart as well, and 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 having that conversation helped me really think about ways to uh, to um, focus on that. Um. Thank you. You know, you gave us a lot to, to think about, but also to, to feel. So it, um, it was a pleasure having you. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. So what'd you think of today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversations and you're a part of that. Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me at bschwartzman, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N, at reconstructingjudaism.org. We will be back very soon with an all-new episode. Evolve! Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wax. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, today joined by Rabbi Jacob Staub. We will see you next time.